Okay, we are in Joshua chapter 22. We started this last week, and we're going to pick up again uh, in Joshua chapter 22. What's happening is Joshua is sending the, the tribes on your map to the right, to the east of the Jordan River. You see Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh on the right side of that map. They have fought now for seven years alongside their brothers to take the land on the, on the west side of the Jordan, and now they are returning. They did everything faithfully as they were supposed to do. And we read last week how Joshua had summoned them, and he, he's sending them back. And then he, he says, he says uh, um, let, let's pick it up in, in, verse, in verse 7 of Joshua 22, verse 7. Now to the one-half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua gave a possession among the brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So remember that Joseph had a double blessing because of his faithfulness. Joseph had two children, Ephraim and Manasseh, two sons, and he got a double blessing, so he got a double portion, so each of his sons was given a portion in Israel. But Manasseh was the oldest, so Manasseh got a double portion over that of Ephraim. So the way it happened is the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. All the other kids would split the remaining one-third. I've told my, my, my children I'm going to do that. And, and they all get angry with my older son about that. Um, but but it's, it, says, it says, now to the one-half tribe of Manasseh, verse 7, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. So you see Bashan up, is, is up in the north right-hand corner there. And then he makes reference to Manasseh, which is in the central part of the, of the western portion as well. And now and it says, So Joshua sent them away to their tents, and he blessed them. Now verse 8, And he said to them, Return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock, and with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and very many clothes. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers." So they had acquired much in the last seven years of battling. Remember, they went into a land and they were able to occupy cities that they did not build. They were able to acquire livestock and they, they, they got uh, uh, the people who lived there got vineyards that they did not, did not plant. They moved into territories that they didn't build themselves. God gave it to them. And in many ways, I feel the same way. When I read this, I feel the same way. I work in a building, the nanotechnology building. I didn't build that building. I didn't plan on building that building. Rick Smalley had raised the money for that, and donors gave money, and I just moved in. I mean, I am the recipient of many things that people have given before me. We occupy this room. This room was paid for by other people. There's no government support that came into this room. This room came because people gave money. It was remodeled about seven years ago. That remodeling job, that recarpeting job was paid for by other people. We get to come and enjoy this. This building that we're in was paid for by other people. In fact, this was the original structure of the old church. First they met in, in mobile homes, and that's out on the picture out there. But then this was the original structure. This was the front door to the church coming in. And this is where they used to meet. But anyway, this was built by other people. We enjoy many things that have been given and laid down by other people have paid for this. That's why when you grow up and go into the real world and God blesses you, you are to give. You are to give that goes way beyond yourself. You're giving for other generations after you. 
we are getting to enjoy this. None of the people that built this building and paid for the building of this building are, are even alive. But we get to enjoy it. You start by giving at your age. And starting place, a good place to give is 10%. And you say, well, you know, 10% isn't in the New Testament. Well, what's in the New Testament is they gave everything. Take your choice. What would you like to give? 10% is a good place to start. And you say, well, I don't make much. But still, does, can you divide it into 10 parts? If it's divisible by 10, you can give a tenth, all right? And you give something of what you have. You give a tenth portion of what you have, learning to give. And they were recipients. God blessed them. So now they're taking back all of this silver, gold, iron, bronze, livestock. They're taking back to the other side because they had captured a lot of this. So they, he's sending them back rich. And he says, divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. There was a statute in Israel which is going to be codified, which is going to be made an official statute in David's day, and that is those who go off to war and acquire goods have to share it with their brothers who remain back, with the families that remain back. So on this side, there were brothers that were guarding the people on that side. You were to share it with them. Those who went off to war share equally with those who remained with the baggage. That's the statute that, that David is going to enact. But you see the very seeds of it right here. Verse 11. I think, no, I'm sorry, verse 9. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had possessed according to the command of the Lord through Moses. So they, they were in Shiloh. Shiloh's in, in, in uh, um, just in, in this area. You see Shiloh above the A of, between the A and the I of Ephraim. You see that, that Shiloh right there. It's just sh south of Shechem. And I tried to find it because I know that they, they, they reestablished the tabernacle that had moved in the wilderness. They reestablished it there, re it there at, at Shiloh. And, and, uh, um, so I've read that some people say that, that the altar was actually established in Shechem and not in Shiloh. So I'm not sure about that. But it's in that area. And it says then the, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad and Reuben, go back to the land of Gilead. The land of Gilead is that entire region to the east of the Jordan River. That's the land of Gilead. It's a, and you can see the mountains. It's that mountain range that goes up and down through, through all through those tribes from Bashan in the north all the way down to where Reuben is. And if you stand in Israel and you look across the Jordan River, you can see these mountain ranges that they're talking about. That's the land of Gilead. Now verse, verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. When the sons of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. Okay, so there's a huge, huge uh, uh, disaster that's occurred. So they left Shiloh. They go, they're going back across. And so, so from Shiloh to the Jordan River is not very far. I mean, we can see it on this map. It's, it's somewhere. Um, so Shiloh to the Jordan River 
is, is somewhere around 10 miles. So it's not very far. So they go about 10 miles journey, and they're going downhill down toward that Jordan Valley. And on the western side of the Jordan, on the side of the Jordan that belongs to the, 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 the other 10 tribes, is that, is that uh, uh, they set up an altar. Now, there was to be no other altars for offering sacrifices on. That altar was to be, there was one altar and all Israel was to go to that one altar that was set up in that area, in, in there above uh, Ephraim and, and uh, uh, between Shechem and Shiloh. So they were supposed to be going there, but they set up an altar and you're like, why are they doing this? Have they already started to rebel against God and against his command? And so the children of Israel heard about this. And they gathered at Shiloh and they decided to go to war against their brothers. The ones that have been fighting alongside of them for seven years, they're now going to go to war against them. And, and it says, because they set up an altar and it says, it was in, in verse 10, a large altar in appearance. So it was actually even bigger than the altar, the real altar, but it says in appearance. Now they didn't set it up on the east side, on their own side which if they were really going to rebel, you would think that they would set it up on their own side. That's exactly what Jeroboam did when the altar had finally been moved to Jerusalem. Uh, um, uh, Jeroboam, when he, when he rebelled, he set up a separate altar in Shechem. This is, but there was a huge misunderstanding here to the point that they are going to go to war. This is not that unusual, actually. There are misunderstandings that draw people to the brink of war and sometimes even into war. So it says in, in verse 13, the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the half tribe of Manasseh in, into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him 10 chiefs, one chief for each father's household from each of the tribes of Israel. And each one of them was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. So it says that, that they, the heads of the tribes, along with Phinehas, who is Phinehas? Phinehas is the grandson of Aaron. Aaron the priest, who was Moses' brother, had a son named Eleazar. Remember Eleazar, we had just read about him. He was the one that worked with Joshua and these, these tribal leaders to divide up the land. The land was divided up by lot, which means they, they drew lots, depending on the size of the tribe. By lot and depending on the size of the tribe. Eleazar's son was Phinehas. Phinehas was well known. But you, now you see the mantle being passed from Eleazar because Eleazar is going to be quite old as well. And now you've got to walk 10 miles down this hill. So Phineas is now taking over this role. Phineas, we, he was seen before Numbers chapter 25. In fact, it was him who stopped the plague that God had killed 24,000 of Israel when he executed the judgment of God that, that uh, um, there was one of, the, one of the sons of Israel had taken one of the women of the land and in front of all the elders took her into his tent to marry her. And God was just in the midst of judging Israel for taking on foreign wives, for taking on unbelieving wives. And so Phineas, in his zeal, took a spear, went and stabbed the guy through and the woman through right there in their tent. And God, and through that, checked the plague. He was well known. But when Phineas comes knocking, you know, it's, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> this is Phineas. You think, you know, this is some old priest coming? I mean, Phineas was a tough guy. 
They send Phineas along with these tribal leaders. So each of the tribe would, would send a leader and they go into Gilead. So they go across the Jordan River to meet with the leaders from these two and a half tribes and say, what are you doing? You can't build an altar. And so it says they came in, in verse, in, in verse uh, 15. Yeah, in verse 15, they came to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead, and they spoke to them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from, the, from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us? from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. If you rebel against the Lord today, He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. And so this is Phineas, and he makes reference to Peor. Peor is from Numbers chapter 25. That's where Phineas used this spear on, on, on this son of Israel and this, this foreign woman, and that's where God killed 24,000 of Israel. So there were a handful of people that had violated, and it caused tremendous pain upon all of Israel. He says, this isn't just going to hurt you guys. This is going to bring God's judgment on all of Israel. They lived as a community. To them, it was a very communal thing. Then he says, if, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban, and the wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. So, again, he makes reference to another account. He says, just remember what happened when we first came into the land. We conquered Jericho, and then we went to Ai. That little city of Ai defeated us because Achan had stolen a, a piece of gold from Jericho and, that was under the ban, and it brought judgment upon all of Israel. He says, you're going to bring judgment on all of us. But look what he does. He offers them this. He says... If that side of the land is defiled, if that's not good enough for you, then come to our side of the Jordan. We will give you parts of our land. Yes, it's less for us, but he cared more about their welfare and their walking with the Lord than he did about his, their own belongings. We are willing to take what we have on the west side of the Jordan and divide it up with you guys. Don't stay there and rebel. Look how intent he was in seeing them not fall into sin to the point that he's willing to give up huge portions of the land on the west side of the Jordan for them, if that's what it would take to bring peace so that they're not following another god, so that they're not offering up strange things on another altar. You look at how much he cares about others falling into sin. This is the way he cared about them, to the point that it was going to cost them a great deal, but it bothered them to see their brethren falling into sin. It says, says then in, uh, in verse 21, Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the families of Israel. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows, and may Israel itself know, if it, is in if it was in rebellion or if in an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day 
If we have built an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if to offer a burnt offering or a grain offering on it, or to offer sacrifice of peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself require it. But truly, we have done this out of concern for reason saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you. Your sons of, you sons of Reuben, you sons of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. So the first thing they say to them is, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. That's El, Elohim, Adonai. El, God. Elohim, the plural of God. Gods. Not, not, not apostrophe S, but the plural of God. Gods. God, gods. And then he says the name, the name of the Lord. We translate that Jehovah. Yahweh. God, gods, Jehovah. God, God's Jehovah. They're calling down and using the very most mighty name that they can use. This, to say this, shakes a person because it, it's, they're not trying to rebel. They realize that God, He is over all gods. He is the Lord. And this God, God's the Lord. Elohim is the plural of God. This, to us, as believers, gives us the, the, the unity that God is one, but there, there's this collectiveness of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you read the Jewish writings, they try to explain this away in amazing things, in amazing ways, because you're putting a plural to God, which is often used. And, and he says, El Elohim Adonai. So they repeat this. So this is for, for being emphatic. He says, we didn't do it as an unfaithful act. We would never offer anything on it. It's not for, he says, it's not for, for burnt offerings or grain offerings or to offer peace offerings on it. It's not for that. It is just a memorial, a testimony. It is a big altar that represents the altar that you have there so that we can point to that because we're afraid that in years to come, your children, not you, you guys remember, but your children are going to say to our children in a few generations, hey, the Jordan River is between us and you. You have no part with us. And he, said, he says that we are worried that your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. How are their sons going to make the other sons stop fearing the Lord? If you keep telling a person that they're unsaved, for example, they'll stop fearing God. You know, you keep judging a person and saying, you have no part with us. You have no part with us. They'll stop fearing God. In, in fact, in, 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 uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul reproves a man because he's sleeping with his father's wife. So his father's got another wife. And, and Paul reproves the whole body of Christ there in Corinth about this. And then in 2 Corinthians, they stop interacting with, 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 with uh, all people who are sinners. He says, don't do that. He says, the world you've got to interact with. And he says, welcome the man back. He's repented. Welcome him back. He says, he says he's been through enough. He's been through enough. He has repented. Now welcome him back into your midst. And so he says, your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. You know, sometimes people will say to me, hey, you know, that guy's not saved. He does such and such. I say, look, I have nothing to do with that. I have no idea who's not saved. I have no idea who's not saved. I know who's saved. Because the Bible says that if you, if you are willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, you shall be saved. 
He doesn't give anything else after that. He doesn't tell us who's not saved. I don't know who's not saved. I can tell you who's saved. As far as who's not saved, that's up to God. I'm not judging anybody. I got enough mess in my own life. I can tell you who's saved. He he says, your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. He says, therefore, in verse verse, uh, 26, therefore, we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifices, rather it shall be a witness between us and you, between our generation after us, that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. He says, when we can see that from the other side of the Jordan, remember the Jordan's not that wide. We can look at that huge altar and it reminds us that we got to go back up to the main altar to do sacrifices. We've got to go back up. That's what it's for. It's a reminder so that your sons in time to come don't exclude our sons from our portion in the Lord. Therefore, it shall also come about. If they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, then we shall say, see the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it is a witness between us. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering, or for sacrifice besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. So in verse 30, So when Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the, tap, and to the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have de- delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the sons of Israel and brought back word to them. The word pleased the sons of Israel and the sons of Israel blessed God and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar witness for They said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So they stopped a war by just going and sending a delegation of peace. Because what had happened was they looked at the altar and they started to make a judgment on intent. Let me let me give you a few a a few experiences in my own life. Um, Sometimes people wonder how I know so many things about different situations. It's because I've blown it so much. I have this wealth of data points in my life for all the times I've blown it. And, and so, so the, the, the first pastor to really disciple me was a man named Dr. T.E. Koshi. And uh, um, I don't know, se- several years a- after we had met, you know, I'd been in this church there when I was an undergraduate, and then I had moved on to graduate school. And I don't remember how many years out, but maybe five years after I'd first met him, he did something that I didn't understand. So I went to him and I said, you know, you did such and such and that was wrong. It was wrong of you to do that. And he looked at me, he said, you have no idea how to approach, approach somebody. I said, what do you mean? He said, you don't come 
and speak to somebody like that, that you've done wrong this way. When I'm in this position and you're in that position, you, you can certainly come and ask me, why did you do that? And then he explained to me why he had made the decision that he had made. And when I saw it from his perspective, I was like, gulp. <laughs> oh, what I learned in that day was how to approach my elders, how to approach those in authority and not come to them with an accusation, but just come with an inquiry as to why did you do that? Maybe you explain to me as soon as I saw from his perspective. And, you know, to this day, I am trying to remember what I was upset about. I can't even remember it. <clears throat> All I remember is that he reproved me and I well deserved it. And I was very much like it says in Job chapter 42, verse 6. It says, therefore, I retract and I repent, repent in sackcloth and in ashes. I retract and I just backed up. I said, you are right. I am so wrong. Please forgive me for the way I said this. He said, I know you, you meant well. And, and so what happens is we have a tendency to look at what people do and to judge intent. Intent is very hard to judge. <clears throat> they see an altar and they thought that that altar was, that, that they intended to rebel against the Lord and to start offering up sacrifices on that altar rather than on the altar that they were supposed to go to at the tabernacle. Intent is very hard to judge. In fact, what judges our intent is, is in Hebrews. If you look in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, <clears throat> It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the word of God that judges our intentions. This is why we must be in the word because the Lord checks our intentions. Why are you doing this? Well, because I want to help that person. And you read the Word of God and all of a sudden it grabs your true intentions. Let me give you another example that I have experience with as well. A man, so, so when I was in college, I justified myself to visit a young lady's room because I was going to share with her. The Word of God got through to my intentions. My intentions were not nearly that good. The Word of God exposes our intentions. It says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Everything is opened up before the Lord. This is why if we are not in the Word of God, our intentions can never be checked. <clears throat> you say, well, the Holy Spirit speaks to me. Let me tell you something. It is so easy to think that our own mind is the Holy Spirit. I am not negating the fact that the Holy Spirit can speak to a person. But we can so often hear the Holy Spirit say what we want it, Him to say to us. You go around the corner, there will be a parking space there. I've heard that many times. And I go around the corner and there's no parking space there. So that goes to show you that my hearing of the through the Spirit, is not very good. This is what happens, especially when hormones are involved. Because these are chemicals 
that modified behavior, just very small amounts of them, can modify behavior tremendously. You can take one milligram of a compound and administer it to Mother Teresa and turn her from being the greatest woman who's, who's ever lived in our generation to being a mass murderer. You can do this with one milligram of a compound. Isn't that amazing? Hormones are amazing things. You have to be very careful about things. The Word of God will check your heart. This is what it's there for. The Word of God exposes to us. There are things, there are judgments that we make concerning people. Judgments that we make concerning people that we have to be very careful about. I'll give you a very clear example where people will say things about certain pastors. So they'll say things about, for example, my beloved friend, they'll say things about Joel Osteen. That they don't, you know, he says this, he says that. I say, look, first of all, he's a friend of mine. If I had ever heard him say about you, what you're saying about him, I would talk to him about that. That's number one. Number two, I've been in this church several times. I've never heard anything really wrong. Now, there are people that critique every one of his words because he's such a high-profile person. I am telling you that if people went back and critiqued all the messages that I've given in this class... They will say that tour preaches heresy. I am sure that I've said things that are wrong, and I know that because I've later learned that they were wrong. And I'm like, sorry. <laughs> what am I going to do? I mean, I do the best I can. If you're going to teach the Bible, you're going to get some stuff wrong sometimes. And God understands. I mean, none of us are theologians. We're going to get this stuff wrong. But God has still called us to speak. You go ahead, you teach a Bible study. It's not going to be all perfect. But if they critique you like they critique Joel Osteen, they would condemn you too. This is why we really have to be careful about judgments. Look in, uh, look, look, look in, um, uh, where is this? This is in, in Romans, Romans chapter 2, <clears throat> reading from verse 1. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. <clears throat> For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? We see so often the weaknesses in other people that we ourselves have. That's why we see it. <clears throat> so, so Jesus put it this way. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This famous portion, the, the, the way Jesus described this. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here's the picture. Jesus paints this picture. I have got a log stuck into my eye. And... I look at you, I say, see, you got a speck in your eye. Let me take these forceps and extract that for you. You'd be like, whoa. You first take care of yourself. This is exactly the picture he paints. 
What we see in others that we are so quick to judge, we generally have the same thing in our own life. That's why we see it. If it were not there in our own life, then we often, we doesn't bother me. I don't even notice what the guy's doing. Jesus is the one who said, when you judge another, be careful because you might have the log in your own eye. In fact, he says you do have the log in your own eye. Romans tells us not to judge one another. This is, this is the things that are going on. We, we, we see something and you can definitely walk up to somebody and say, tell me why you're doing this and bring them back to the word of God. Nothing wrong with that, but we just have to be very careful about passing judgment upon another. Sometimes things look really bad. Somebody says, you know what this person did? This person did, 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 did. Well, remember the scriptures say, never take up the reproach against another. Don't pick up another's reproach. If they did that to you, I'm sorry that they did that to you. I'm sorry that they inflicted that pain on you. But God has given you grace to forgive them. He's given me no grace to forgive them because they've done nothing to me. If I pick up a case against that person, I have no grace from God to to be able to forgive them because they did nothing to me. God will give the person who's offended the grace. Look in Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17 says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. When somebody comes to you and tells you about a situation, it always seems like, oh, wow, you've been terribly offended. But if you go and you ask the other side, then you might see something very different. That's what happened to me when I went to to correct my pastor. You know, I was summarily corrected myself. That the first to plead his case seems right until you examine the other side. There's another side to this story. The same thing happened in Joshua's day. That he seemed right until, until it, it, it seemed right until, until there was this other side. <clears throat> this other side. And so let's close with this since we're in Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. <clears throat> reading from verse 1. A gentle answer. Proverbs 15 verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, if somebody's doing something, you can definitely bring the word of God to them and say, Could you tell me what's going on here? This is what I read in the Word of God. But if we come to somebody and they say, you did did it, as soon as somebody comes to me like that, I'm like, who are you talking to? You know, how we approach people. And and you see it by email. Somebody comes with a little bit of a sharp email and I I can tell I'm just slamming on the keyboard. I can't wait to hit send. I mean, I... I just see it, the blood just coming up in my ears. Does that ever happen to you? And, and we have to be very careful how we respond. A gentle answer turns away wrath. There was going to be war in Israel. Two and a half tribes were going to die as long as a lot of people in the ten tribes were going to die in the process. Just because of a misunderstanding. So often it's a misunderstanding. We think people have so offended us that they intended on just destroying us. Generally, there was never any such intent. It was a very small understanding. And it's like, just, I meant nothing in it. El, Elohim, Adonai. I mean, God is great. God is great. I meant nothing by it. I meant nothing by it. 
God wants us to learn how to approach people. And then when we have done wrong, to be like Job and say, I retract, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. To learn how to respond to people and never judge another's intent, but let the Word of God judge our own intent. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Abba, Father, come and touch the hearts, I pray. Sear this right into their hearts. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and make them better because of this. Father, that they would learn not to judge another, that they would be very careful, lest they have the log in their own eye. And Father, I pray that that they would reflect back on this and say, Lord, have I got that same log in my own eye? And be careful to first correct themselves. Lord, I pray that you would spare them the pain that I have gone through myself because of my own disobedience in this area. Father, I pray that you spare them because of this word of God. Father, I pray that as the scriptures speak to their hearts, that you would cause them to excel in you, that they would open up the word of God and have their own intents exposed to them by the power of the Holy Spirit through your word. Father, that you would expose that so that they can correct it. Lord God, your grace be upon them. Your grace be upon them. The grace of God surround them. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.